You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to, my, to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, And he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, 
Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word, and we pray now that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus high and lifted up. We pray now that in your word, by your spirit, that we would see him and that we might cry in our heart of hearts, holy, holy, holy. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Hello, everyone. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Nathan. I am one of the pastors here. I'd love to meet you after. It looks like there's lots of visiting family in from out of town. Maybe some of our folks are visiting out of town elsewhere. Uh, I hope you're recovering from Thanksgiving. I am still recovering. Uh, we've just now hit the threshold where I can't eat any more turkey or leftovers. Uh, but it takes me like a solid three days because I love it. Love it. Well, next week, the first Sunday in December, we're going to begin a long walk through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, just a heads up, we're going to take it pretty slow. Uh, and we're going to take multiple breaks throughout that thing, maybe like seven or eight chapters at a time, come back to an Old Testament book or something, and then come back and pick it up where we left off. Uh, but today, we are wrapping up this short but powerful book of Ruth. And chapter four might be the most powerful of them all. Uh, while you may not have necessarily noticed while Stephanie was reading, chapter four is all about names. It's more than that, but it's, at its very essence, throughout the book, the question has been, will the name of Elimelech, who is just a minor character at the very beginning, but will his name be carried on? Will the family name of Naomi's husband die out or endure? Will Naomi have an heir? Will Ruth have an heir of her own? Whose names will be remembered in this story? Whose names will be forgotten? And so we're going to break this chapter up into two contrasting headings. First of all, just a name to be forgotten, and then contrasting with that with a name to be remembered. Let's just get into it. A name to be forgotten. Now, just to remind you of where we are, if you haven't been with us the past three weeks, uh, last week in chapter three, we saw a very intimate moment where Ruth, in the middle of the night, essentially comes to Boaz with a marriage proposal, which is exactly how Boaz understood it. Uh, throughout the entire middle of the night, the two of them act in utmost integrity, and then he tells her that one way or another, uh, she will be provided for. She will be married. He says that he will marry her, thus giving her a place of social security, of familial security. This is the ideal, what we've all been hoping for. This is what Naomi and Ruth have been hoping for. This is what we have been hoping for throughout this story, that these two hardworking, God-honoring, faithful, kind, generous people, they seem to just be a match made in heaven, despite, even as we saw last week, a potential uh, difference in age. But then chapter three ends with a twist that we did not see coming. Boaz told Ruth that while it's true that he is a redeemer, he is a distant relative who can marry her, he then tells her that there is a redeemer who is nearer than him. Now, Boaz's integrity is starting to get a little annoying. Uh, the, this nearer redeemer, whoever he is, uh, he has given no intention throughout this whole story that he intends to marry or redeem Ruth. There is clearly no social pressure on this nearer redeemer uh, from the other people in Bethlehem. No one would think anything of it if Boaz just announced in the morning that he intends to marry Ruth, that they are now, they are now both betrothed to be married. But no matter what he wants, no matter what Ruth wants, Boaz is committed to doing what's right, committed to honoring the law as given by God, and then just trusting 
in God with the outcome, that there is someone legally who ought to redeem and marry Ruth before him. So he wants to give this nearer redeemer every opportunity and chance for that, and then just to trust God. Now, here we are in chapter 2 or in chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, and he sat down there. Now the city gate is the most busy place in town. It's where everyone in the city would daily pass through. It's also the place where the town elders would congregate and sit and just hang out. We don't, I don't think we don't really don't have a place like that in Albuquerque, but if you've ever been to like a smaller European town or basically any Middle Eastern country, I think you can pretty, pretty easily imagine a place like this, where the older men of the town or the city just hang out and talk, where they are there most of the day drinking coffee or drinking tea, playing chess, uh, discussing the orders of the city and the town, perhaps even a little gossip. Uh, maybe people are coming to them with questions and they're dispensing their wisdom. And this is the place where Boaz goes. Boaz wants to get to the city gate the very first thing in the morning, just like he said he would do, to camp out for the day. He needs to be there when this nearer redeemer happens to walk by that day. And behold, right away, second half of verse one, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Now, our English word for friend here isn't the same word for friend that's used throughout most of the Old Testament. Think about like all of the Proverbs about friends or friendship. That's not the word that he says here. The word that he actually calls out to this man with is actually like a rhyming phrase that is actually kind of meaningless. Boaz, or at least the narrator as giving us Boaz's words, they're going out of their way to never tell us this guy's name. Did you notice that in chapter 4? That as you were listening to this story, we don't know this person's name. He is the Redeemer, or as several Hebrew scholars have tried to better translate this rhyming phrase for the word friend, he's just Mr. So-and-so. So Boaz says, turn aside, Mr. So-and-so, and sit down. And so Mr. So-and-so turns aside, and he sits down. In verse 2, he, Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Boaz is ready to rock. As soon as Mr. So-and-so walks by, it is business time. He's got all the, business, or the, all the men ready for a necessary quorum of witnesses here. And then here's, what's go, here's what goes down. You've already heard Stephanie read the dialogue, but I'm going to give you one commentator's paraphrase of this entire thing. Boaz is really saying something like this to Mr. So-and-so. He says, Naomi has a field. She needs to sell it to raise money to live on. Now, if there was a kinsman redeemer, however, he, that kinsman redeemer, could buy the field and keep it in the family. Of course, the buyer would ultimately get to add the property to his own inheritance, provided that there are no children involved. Uh, you're the first in line. You interested? And now, when he hears this, Mr. So-and-so, his ears are perking up. He is immediately interested because this is a can't-miss real estate investment. He's going to buy, or he's going to redeem, Elimelech's old property, Elimelech's old field that is now owned by some, someone else after many years of his family being away in Moab. After many years, now a, a short time here, of Ruth and Naomi living here, but having none of the means to be able to buy that field back from whoever bought it. And so here, this man, Mr. So-and-so, can buy it back for Naomi. He can redeem it for her. 
probably at a pretty cheap price. And then since Naomi is older, she is unmarried, she is without children, this land then, after she dies, will then go straight into Mr. So-and-so's real estate portfolio. All he has to do is just care for the aging Naomi for however many more years she has in this life. And then, after she dies, all of the long-term profits of this entire field will become his forever. But then, there's more. In verse 5, Boaz basically says this. Oh, by the way, after he agrees to buy the field, one more thing. When you acquire the field, along with it comes Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead man whose field it was. You must marry her in order to raise up a child for the dead man, a child who will inherit the field when he grows up. This can't-miss real estate investment is now a total financial loss. This would be a very, very unwise and dumb financial move for him now to make. He first has to buy the field and care for the aging Naomi. That's what he was willing to do. But then he finds out he must also marry Ruth, whose dead husband, the son of Elimelech, is the rightful heir of the field. And he must, Mr. So-and-so, then provide for her a son as, his, as her new husband. Then that son will become the heir of the field, leaving Mr. So-and-so with nothing, with no profit, just financial loss. It is now this son's field, not his. Now, like we talked about in chapters 1 and 2, these leveret marriage laws, the laws of brothers marrying the widows, or laws for redemption, that of buying land that was sold in times of financial duress. These are laws that reveal God's heart, God's heart for the vulnerable. These were ancient social security structures to build a society which cared for those who were being left behind. Ruth has been a godly, godly example of hard work. The able poor of Old Testament Israel should not expect to do nothing and then receive financial handouts, but God intended to cultivate a society which would actually be troubled by the financial vulnerability of those living with inside their community. And so Mr. So-and-so, as one commentator summarizes, was only interested in ministry to the poor if there was a payoff for himself and for his family. Costly ministry without or without any personal payoff? Like, you can forget that. If this is going to cost him to care for others, then he is not interested at all. So he says in verse 6, the Redeemer says, Mr. So-and-so says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. He is not willing to lose money to care for the vulnerable. But here's the irony of this entire episode. By seeking to protect his own legacy, by seeking to protect his own family name, to protect his accumulated wealth, to then pass on to his own future generations by way of inheritance, he misses out on everything. I mean, all along, once Boaz told us that there is a nearer redeemer. Once Mr. So-and-so walks through the gate, all along, we've had a sense that this man wasn't right for Ruth. It's like every single Hallmark Christmas movie, So I'm Told, uh, where our main character leaves the guy that we all know she should have never been dating in the first place. She leaves him for the guy that she then meets at the Christmas tree farm. That's what's happening here. Because 
that's the guy. We know she should have never been dating him or whatever. He's, he's terrible. And this is the last time that we ever hear from him. We have no idea who this anonymous, nameless Mr. So-and-so ever was. He was trying so hard to protect his legacy that he has none. Mr. So-and-so is in no way meant to be emulated. He is in no way meant to be remembered, in no way meant to be honored. His name is to be forgotten. He only cares for himself. He only cares for his own financial well-being. He has no care for the poor. He has no care for for the vulnerable. He only acts if it benefits himself. But the story doesn't end here. Back at the Christmas tree farm, I mean the city gate, uh, we find Mr. Wright. Boaz steps in to make things happen. So secondly, a name to be remembered. The Redeemer tells Boaz in verse 8, buy it yourself. And the narrator explains that in these days it was customary to seal a deal or a contract by exchanging sandals, which then happens. And then Boaz tells the quorum of elders and all the people in verse 9, he says, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are all witnesses to this day. He will restore Boaz's will. He will almost resurrect the name of Elimelech from the dead. He's been dead for a long time. But he is going to bring this man's uh, life, his honor and dignity back to uh, not only being known amongst the people, but to be honored amongst the people, even though this family, Elimelech, And his family, his two sons, really, at least the narrator gives us no indication that there was anything for him to be honored for. And yet Boaz is going out of his way to resurrect this name and this honor from the dead. But then a surprising thing happens for really the rest of this chapter and therefore the rest of this book. You thought that I was going to contrast Mr. So-and-so as the name to be forgotten to now Mr. Wright, Boaz, as the name to be remembered, but you'd be wrong. Boaz is not the one who takes center stage here for the rest of the book. Even though she's not here at the city gate, the people at the gate start praising who? Ruth. Who again, here just in this chapter, has been twice referred to as the Moabite. That Ruth, being an outsider and from one of Israel's oldest and most bitter enemies, For any other person, it would be so offensive to their cultural sensibilities that Boaz would go and marry a Moabite. Indeed, Numbers 25, the Israelite men are condemned for going after and marrying who? Moabite wives. The the nation has gone off the rails because they are marrying Moabite women. But that kind of intermarriage is condemned in Numbers 25 because the men are going after the women and their gods as a package deal. It's not necessarily that they are marrying Moabite women, it's that they are marrying Moabite women with Moabite gods. But Ruth is the opposite of all of that. She is admirable, she is worthy. 
She has come to Israel's God. She has forsaken all to commit herself to Israel's God, to commit herself to Israel's people. And so no one here thinks twice about it. Yeah, it's actually great news that Boaz would marry the Moabite. Yeah, that checks out. Ruth, the Moabite, she's amazing. These people are praising her, and they are offering blessings on Ruth that she might be counted among the founding matriarchs of Israel, Rachel and Leah. They say, may her house become like that of Tamar. This is a weird thing for these people to say. If you know the story of Genesis 38, Boaz hasn't been anything like the despicable Judah in that story, which is why the people at the gates here likely probably don't make that connection from Boaz to Judah. But like Tamar, Ruth is a widowed outsider. She has no heir, but through her initiative, she has secured a marriage and an inheritance, though Ruth with the utmost integrity. And so these women are saying, or the people are saying, may her house, may, they, may it grow in numbers and blessing just like Tamar's house did. In fact, it's her house, Tamar and Judah's house, that receives in Genesis 49 a promise of coming royalty. A scepter will come from Tamar's house, from, Judah, from the tribe of Judah. And so here, likewise, Ruth, well known for her committed faithful kindness to Naomi and her devoted faithfulness to Naomi's God, is a praiseworthy woman no matter her status, no matter her ethnic background. They are praising her at the city gates while she's not there. What are we to assume that she's doing? She's likely at home just busting it. If Naomi's still maybe watching Days of Our Lives, uh, Ruth is probably making breakfast with all of the grain that she has brought home from the night before, cleaning up the kitchen. Who knows what she's doing? She is working hard like she has done through the entire book. But here's the thing with Ruth. Here's the thing with this woman and with this book. In, in the canonical order of our Bibles, meaning the, the order that the books come to us in our Bible, we have this book immediately following the book of Judges, which makes sense, and as we've seen, helps us understand its context. The final chapter of Judges, the final chapters of Judges, describe a horrendous episode in the town of Bethlehem. And the last verse of that book in Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then in Ruth 1.1, we read, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, all of that is super helpful for understanding the context of this narrative that Ruth is living her life in. However, many other ancient Hebrew canons put the book of Ruth in a different spot. Any guesses where? Where might you put this book, the book of Ruth, if you were to, if you just had a potpourri bowl of all of the Old Testament books, what book might you consider putting this after? Many put the book of Ruth right after the book of Proverbs. What? Why? Why would you do that? That makes no sense. But what is the last chapter of the book of Proverbs? Proverbs 31. I'm not going to read that whole chapter, but listen to some of these selected sections from Proverbs 31. An excellent or worthy wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. 
The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates." Ruth is the ideal Proverbs 31 woman of wisdom. We are meant to read that chapter, this lady wisdom, and then turn over to Ruth 1 and say, oh yeah, there she is. Here at the end of Ruth 4, her works are literally being praised at the gates. Now, if I were directing this movie, as soon as the sandal exchange happens and all the people start praising Ruth, like I would keep their words going audibly about all that uh, Rebecca and uh, Leah and Tamar, all that stuff going. You can still hear their words, but then I would shift the camera back at home where Ruth is slow motion just working like crazy. Then maybe have one of the elders at the gate unroll the scroll of Proverbs, and then while he's reading Proverbs 31, we flash back over another like slow motion montage of all the key moments of Ruth's life that we've already seen in this movie, of her faithful commitment to Naomi, of her moving to Israel and standing beside her destitute mother-in-law, of her exhausting all-day work in the fields without complaint in order that she might provide for her household showing over and over and over again her initiative, her wisdom, her integrity, an excellent or worthy woman who can find. Or as Boaz said in chapter 3, verse 12, to Ruth, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Who can find? Apparently, he thinks he just has. Proverbs thirty-one thirty says that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Who knows what Ruth looks like? if she is physically attractive or not. But she is the most beautiful woman in Bethlehem. And Boaz, the wise and generous and godly man that he is, must marry her. Like, it's like all romantic stories that we just know those two, they must be together. We all intuitively know and long for this. It is a match made in heaven, which is exactly the way we thought about Proverbs 31 back in January when we were going through that book, that the most ideal feminine character in the book of Proverbs is wisdom herself. In chapters 7, 8, and 9, and all throughout the book, the book of Proverbs is giving us lady wisdom, this personified wisdom character. And we thought about that whole book really just being an extended meditation on Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that in the beginning, man was created to know and to dwell with God. And that God created woman as a helper for him. Not as in like a kindergarten, my little helper kind of way, but a helper being the same word that is often used for God. My help and my salvation. That man in the garden actually needs woman to accomplish what he cannot by himself. And so man and woman are given the tree of eternal life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the question quickly becomes in that narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, then into chapter 3 of, will they fear the Lord? Will they trust him? 
continually coming to him for the wisdom from above? Or will they trust in themselves for worldly, fleshly foolishness, a wisdom of their own? And so starting in Proverbs 1, the royal father, remember, the royal father has his arm around his son saying, here, here, son, here is personified wisdom. Here is the good life. She is your helper. Wisdom is your helper to accomplish with you what you could not accomplish on your own of a life of consummated dwelling with God, full and free as we were intended to live. And so the book of Proverbs is actually about rejecting the tree of the world that promises life but only brings death, grasping after fruit from the tree of our own wisdom, and instead walking hand in hand with Lady Wisdom in the fear of the Lord and with eyes fixed joyfully on our King, walking to the tree of life, the tree of God's wisdom. The book of Ruth is functioning in the exact same way. It is a historical, real-life enacted parable for us all whether we are male or female, that we might pursue the good life in the pursuit of Lady Wisdom, in desiring her, in becoming like her. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. A worthy woman, a worthy wife, who can find? We are to become like her and to long for her. Yes, perhaps, in physical, momentary marriages of a couple of decades or two or four or five in our life, but the marriage of wisdom that we are created for, for eternity. So back to my direction of the movie, the montage continues as the people are still speaking and perhaps as uh, the elder at the gate is still reading Proverbs 31, but now the montage goes on into the future with the soundtrack swelling at, at the wedding ceremony of Boaz and Ruth, and all of Bethlehem in slow motion, like dancing and celebrating around them. The montage continues then, jumps, jumping ahead as we see Ruth then smiling and pregnant. Then with Ruth and Boaz proudly holding their newborn son. And then with the music and the montage coming to an end, we can finally hear for the first time in a couple of minutes uh, some people's voices of the of the faces that we actually see on the screen. We can hear and see Naomi laughing, overwhelmed in happiness and in gratitude and in fullness, bouncing her grandson on her knees. Now, don't be thrown off by this word nurse at the end of verse 16. It just means that she basically just became the little boy's nanny. She became his, his granny. And the, woman, the women surrounding Naomi, dancing in happiness around her, saying to her, a son has been born to Naomi. Naomi left Bethlehem, thinking that she was full, and then thinking that she returned empty. When she got back to Bethlehem at the end of chapter 1, we saw her say, do not call me Naomi, which means sweetness. Do not call me sweetness. Do not call me sweetie pie. She told the women there, call me bitterness. And undoubtedly, she had gone through so much, she had experienced so much loss and death, she was sad. She was bitter. But now, a great reversal has happened. She once again has an heir. The, the women say in verse 15, he, this new grandson, shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. She is experiencing unexpected new life which just months ago 
would have been impossible. But now experiencing the resurrection faithfulness of God, you turn mourning to dancing, you turn graves into gardens, you turn shame into glory. Naomi has seen and now experienced the faithful kindness of God in ways in which she might have only theoretically known about before. Now she might say in her heart and believe, you're the only one who can. She has lost her sons. But in the words of the women of Bethlehem, she has gained not only a grandson, but second half of verse 15, a daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. This is an unheard of statement or sentiment in the ancient world. Sons were a way of securing and then increasing your inheritance, while daughters were actually a financial net loss. But the women see and understand the commitment and faithfulness of Ruth to be an actual inheritance in and of herself to Naomi. Whether or not she ever gave Naomi a grandson or not, she, Ruth, to Naomi is better than seven sons. Better of all that she could have hoped for, this daughter-in-law is the best. What a good God to have given you this daughter-in-law, they are saying. Ruth's name is the one to be remembered. A Moabite who perhaps understood and then demonstrated the law of God better than any Israelite here in Bethlehem, of loving the Lord with all of her heart, with all of her soul, with all of her strength, and with all of her mind, and by loving her neighbor as herself. She is lady wisdom to be emulated, to be sought after. But if you thought the end of chapter 3 was a twist with the introduction of Mr. So-and-so, the end, of, or the end of verse 17 here in chapter 4 is like a bomb. Verse 17, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Wait, what? Like the record just scratched to a halt. We thought we had a pretty narrowly zoomed-in love story. It is so sweet. Of God's providence and his care of his faithful provision. But this is not a narrow love story. It's like the end of this movie. It like, I don't know. It's like the, it was on like planet Earth or something that we were just narrowly focused on one antelope. And then we see that this is like a drone shot that is like a thousand foot high. And it is zooming out and it is zooming out and it is zooming out We zoom out and we see all of Israel's history narrowing on Ruth and Boaz and then exploding out from them. We didn't realize that the promises of royalty given to Judah in Genesis 49 were in such peril, were in such danger while we were reading about Ruth being away in Moab. She's a vulnerable woman who might not make it another week because of starvation. The promises of Judah were hinging on her that the anointed king and deliverer of Israel, her greatest king, Israel's greatest king, David, was actually the great-grandson of a Moabite widow and some aging bachelor in Bethlehem. We didn't realize that God would secure his people, not just within their lifetimes, but in future generations, with a deliverer king. All through the covenant faithfulness of an ideal husband, and a destitute foreign woman. This whole thing has been building 
and building and building, and then at the end, it blows up, going global. And like all genealogies in the Bible, verses 18 through 21 that wrap up this book are incredible. It begins with Perez, the son of Judah and Tamar, who was conceived in, shall we say, less than ideal circumstances. And Boaz, the son of Salmon, we find out, means that Boaz is the son of who else? Do you know Salmon? Salmon is the husband of Rahab the prostitute from Jericho. As Stephanie shared with me an insight from the women's Bible study this week, that maybe it was because Boaz had an outsider mother who had left her old life to commit herself to the people and to the God of Israel, that Boaz, the son of Rahab, the Jericho prostitute, was then able and willing to see and admire others who had done the same. Some outsider who had put herself in a place of vulnerability because of her committed faithfulness to Israel's God. And it's in this line of thinking that Matthew explains the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, right off the beginning, right off the top at the beginning of Matthew, that of all the women, the women that Matthew could have included in the genealogy of Jesus, perhaps he could have included women like Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or maybe even others like Miriam or Deborah, some of the so-called heroes of the Old Testament narrative, narrative, who are the women that Matthew includes? Just four. He includes Tamar, an outsider who posed as a prostitute. He includes Rahab, an outsider who was a prostitute. He includes Ruth, an outsider and a vulnerable widow. And Mary, a, teenage, a teenager suspected by all around her of sexual immorality. It's this genealogy that Sam Albury says includes the outcast, the scandalous, and the foreigner. The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. We saw last week that Boaz said even better that he knew that there was a redeemer nearer than he, that even the family name and inheritance that Boaz and Ruth would restore to Naomi's family is nothing, nothing in comparison to the name and to the inheritance that Jesus the redeemer would give to his bride. In John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, I have manifested your name to the people. He says, I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus shows us the deep, holy, and kind character of our triune God that he might give us the name and the inheritance of God. He tells his disciples to be baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He tells us to pray, not in our name, but confidently in the name of Jesus through his reputation and his renown, through his identity and his work on our behalf and his life and his death and his resurrection, that we might be counted among him in his family to receive his inheritance. And that because of all this, as Paul says in Philippians 2, therefore God has exalted, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is more than just restoring the name of Elimelech. This is more than just bringing about some momentary king, but an eternal king who would reign and rule forever. forever. That the slavery that God had redeemed his people from in Egypt is actually nothing compared to the slavery of sin and death that Jesus has come to redeem his people from. This is the offer that he offers to you, that you might have your sins forgiven, that he might purchase you from your sin and from your slavery, that the destitution and emptiness that Naomi and Ruth suffered is nothing compared to the spiritual destitution, the spiritual emptiness. We have no hope in ourselves that now Jesus has come to fill. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. That we might not be like Naomi saying, I am so empty when he has given so much that he has filled us by his spirit. The lengths to which God has come to redeem and save show the stories of Tamar and of Rahab and of Ruth to be the shadows that they actually are. Incredible stories. Incredible stories of love and of redemption and of kindness and generosity and faithfulness, but always pointing forward to a greater name, to a greater inheritance. We thought, we thought the book of Ruth was about God filling Naomi's emptiness, and it is. We thought through, through Ruth the Moabite that God might give Naomi a name and an inheritance, and it is. But this story is really about giving a world of scandalous outsiders the name and the inheritance of his beloved son toward a greater salvation, a greater marriage, a greater groom, a good and generous king, a son of David who will both care for his bride and rule his kingdom in perfect justice and love. We often sing, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And shall be till I die and shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. This is the story of Ruth, of God redeeming and saving sinners. And while Luke doesn't begin his gospel account with a genealogy like Matthew, Luke more than any other of the gospel accounts, is all about Jesus' welcoming inclusion of the scandalous outsider. To people like you, to people like me, to people like all of us. And the Advent season is a season of expectation, of hope, of welcoming inclusion. And so just like Ruth ends looking forward in hope for a coming king, the coming David, we're going to end our four weeks in this incredible book now looking forward in hope in the next couple of weeks through chapters 1 and 2 of Luke, looking forward to a coming king. And even so we pray, come Lord Jesus, our good and rightful redeeming groom, our good and rightful king. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your wisdom, for your providence, for your goodness, for your generosity, for your kindness to us. While we were yet sinners, you sent your son, Jesus, to live and to die for us to redeem us out of destitution, to redeem us out of our rebellion, to redeem us out of emptiness, to redeem us out of poverty, to give us all things in the Lord Jesus. An inheritance, incorruptible, 
eternal that awaits us in heaven, an inheritance of yourself. And so we pray that we, like Boaz, might long for and seek after Lady Wisdom, that we might seek the wisdom from above, that we might seek your word and your wisdom for our lives rather than grasping for our own. We pray that, like Ruth, we might love our redeeming groom. Just as Kyle led us earlier, just that we might more believe and act and know and experience that you are better than all things. Not just theoretically understand this, but know, trust, and experience. We pray that these things might be true of us more and more deeply as your people for our good, for our joy, and for those outside of the kingdom, for those who feel as scandalous outsiders, but who are being welcomed home by the redeeming love of Christ the King. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.